So last week we spent some time in Isaiah chapter 3 where we saw judgment proclaimed over the people of Judah. And as we saw this judgment, we recognized that we ourselves live in a world that has striking similarities to the one being prophesied against in that chapter. Our world is not as perfect as it would want us to believe or as we would like it to be. And those that pursue justice for the flaws in our world will not be able to perfectly achieve it. Last week, we read about the branch that God put over the people, the branch that we know is the cross, or to be more clear, Jesus' work on the cross. And so because of this branch, because of the work of Jesus, our sins have been purified, burned away, and we can find refuge in the Lord our God. This week... We move into chapter 6. Many sermons have been preached on our text this morning. A text where we see the might and glory of God, where we see the flawed uselessness of man, and where we see the cleansing, the repurposing, and the sending of man. Today I pray that we will be blessed as we see how God cleanses and repurposes and sends us as well. We read... The word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Thus ends the reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. And God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, I don't know if we have uh, any artists here. Maybe we have some aspiring artists, and maybe we have some that wouldn't be caught dead picking up a pencil and putting it to paper with the intention of having anybody recognize what was being drawn. When I was younger, I used to think that I was a, a pretty decent drawer. I can still manage... A little bit, anyway. Typically, if I try to draw something and I have enough time, you can make out what it is that I'm trying to convey through pencil and paper. But I'm not a great artist by any stretch. And that was made incredibly clear to me in the eighth grade. Every Remembrance Day, November 11th in Canada, we would have an art competition. Our our art teacher would have us all come up with a picture, right? We We had to draw and color. And these would be entered into a competition based off of our grade level. 
Each picture would then be hung on the wall outside the art room door, and and men from the Canadian Legion, men who had fought in wars, the men whose friends and brothers had died and were being remembered, would walk the hall and and judge the pictures. The winners from our school would, would move on to the next level until one picture won the top prize in the province. I don't remember what that prize was, but but I remember not caring so much about the prize and caring more that people understood that I was a pretty talented person with pencil and pencil cranes. I remember coming up with the idea for my picture and, and setting to work. We were given a few class periods to get it done, and by the time I finished, I was incredibly impressed with myself. My teacher also seemed impressed and, and continually praised my efforts. And then came the time for all the pictures to be hung on the wall outside the art room door. Now, in the school I grew up in, a very small school by some, most, I would say, standards, there were only 45, or, yeah, 45 kids in my grade, and, and we were considered a big grade. So we were divided into two separate classes, and as our pictures were hung outside the art room door, out on the wall there, we could see the other 8th grade class had their pictures already hanging. And there was one picture that just absolutely shone above the rest. It was fantastic. I don't know where the girl who did the drawing came up with the idea for it, and I had no idea she was as talented as she was, but man, her picture was just so good. It was so good. And as the rest of our pictures were hung on the wall, I began to realize just how good my picture wasn't. This project that I had spent so much time on had worked so hard on, had been so proud of, it just kind of felt like doodles of an infant next to this girl's picture. And man, I was humbled, humbled by the realization that I wasn't even close to as good as I thought I was as an artist. I don't know why that eighth grade experience still sticks out to me so much. In the years that have passed, I have had many, many opportunities to recognize that though I can do some things fairly well, There are others out there who just blow me away with their talent and the gifts that they have been given. I'm sure many of us can relate to that feeling, the feeling of inadequacy, the feeling that we wish we could be as gifted and as talented as those we admire or those that we compare ourselves to. And as we recognize the the gap in our abilities, we are filled with feelings that are even less productive. We begin to feel that We're a little talentless. Maybe we even feel worthless as we compare ourselves to those that we aspire to be. Whatever feeling we may feel, I can't imagine it comes even close to comparing to to the feeling that Isaiah had as he stood before the Lord who is seated on his throne high and exalted. Can you even imagine? I was intimidated that the picture that I had spent so much time on, was so proud of, was hanging on the same wall as the picture that was so much better than mine. But here is Isaiah in the throne room of God. The train of God's robe filled the temple. The power of His majesty filled every nook and cranny of the space. There was nothing that was not covered by His perfection and glory. There was nothing that was not yet covered by His perfection and glory. The angels were singing. Angels with with six wings, two of which covered their faces and two of which covered their feet, and with the other two, they were flying. Isaiah does not give us an exact number of these seraphim, but there were so many that their voices 
shook the doorposts and the threshold of the temple. There were so many of these angels that singing, that the whole building, the whole temple of the Lord was shaking with the sound. And what were they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Can you imagine? Isaiah is going about his daily worship routine, right? Like he's just doing what he normally does. He's praying, he's he's doing his thing. And on this particular day, God gives him a vision. And he sees the glory, the splendor, the magnificence of the Lord spread out before him and around him. And in the sky or the ceiling of the temple are, are thousands, if not millions or more of these angels. And they are singing about the holiness, the greatness of the Lord Almighty. All around Isaiah are the displays of the greatness of God. I think sometimes just because it's easier for us, it, it, it's what we're used to, we, we tend to view things on like a sliding scale, right? Like the food chain, the smaller critters at the bottom, and as we make our way up, the creatures at the top, they, they, they get up the list anyway, the, the creatures get bigger and, and stronger and, and more powerful. And I think that sometimes we tend to grasp the magnificence of God by, by putting him on a sliding scale, right? He's at the top, obviously. I mean, how many times have like, my kids been like, well, who's stronger? You know, who's, who's bigger? You do the comparison. So could a, could a lion defeat a cheetah? Well, probably. But God could whoop that lion, right? Like there's always, there's always like gods at the top. And so we just, we just put him at the top of these, these sliding scales, And so as we think about that, as we consider that, I just want to read you this quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, We must not think of God as the highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with the single cell and going on up from the fish to the bird to the animal to the man to the angel to the cherub to God. God is as high above an archangel as he is above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates a caterpillar from an archangel is finite. It can be measured. But the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. What a concept. We can put an archangel and a caterpillar on the sliding scale because the differences can be measured. God can't even be put on the scale because the difference between him and the archangel is incalculable. And as I wrestle and then rest in that reality, I don't think I can even begin to comprehend the feelings of inadequacy felt by Isaiah in that moment. And his response to this glory all around him is completely understandable. For being near perfection magnifies our flaws. Isaiah immediately recognizes that he does not belong in this temple. He is overwhelmed by the presence, the majesty, the glory of God. His ears are ringing with the voices of angels. The floor is shaking with their song. And Isaiah is incredibly aware of his unworthiness. He is intimately aware of how his sinfulness does not belong in the presence of such perfection. And he is afraid. And his fear leads to confession. Woe to me, Isaiah cries. I am ruined. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What does Isaiah mean by unclean lips? When I was growing up, one form of discipline that was sometimes used in our house was that if I told a lie or I used an inappropriate word, my mother would wash my mouth out with soap, a finishing punishment for the crime. And I used to think that this is what was going on here. Isaiah was, was ashamed of what was and, and what had come out of his mouth. But, but as we recognize his situation and as we analyze his response to the glory that is apparent all around him, we realize that Isaiah's lament goes much deeper than a few lies and some dirty words. He doesn't just need his mouth washed with soap. He is confessing the deep-rooted sinfulness that lives not just in him, but in people. For as we read elsewhere in Scripture from the words of Jesus himself, we see that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The lips of man are stained with the sin of our hearts. Our hearts are unclean, and so our mouths are unclean. And Isaiah recognizes his uncleanliness, his unworthiness, his complete and utter depravity, his sinfulness, and all that he has resulted in. He is overcome. And his response is confession. And as we read his confession, we understand that he realizes that being this close to the glory of God, having laid eyes on the majesty of the creator of heaven and earth, and being in the presence of ultimate power and perfection, he should not survive the encounter. Woe to me, he cries. I am ruined, he wails, for his sinfulness cannot exist in the holy presence of God. I don't know where you are in the crazy walk of your life right now, but that sentence hits each of us, doesn't it? The realization sinks in with each of us. Though we may try to be the best versions of ourselves that we can be, though we, you know, we try to do the right thing, though we strive to be nice people, and we want to seek justice for the oppressed, and we stand up against the bullies of life, and we try to be a good provider for our families, and we mostly want to put others first. Like, that's typically something we, we, we try to do anyway, and when we try to live moral and good lives, we know that we can't do any of these things perfectly. We continue to fail in spite of our best intentions. For like Isaiah and Isaiah's people, we too are people of unclean lips. We too have hearts that are not moral and just, but selfish and self-honoring. And how are you doing with that? How are you doing with recognizing that though we may want to do the right thing, we are so very good at doing the wrong thing. And doing the wrong thing even once puts us in a place where being in the presence of God demands death. For the power of His perfection destroys any imperfection. So how are we doing with that? As we wrestle... With that, a more comforting question to ask is, what did God do about that? As Isaiah stood there confessing his sin and recognizing that death was coming quickly, one of the seraphim took tongs, and with those tongs he removed a coal from the altar. 
Now the coal was, was alive, red, and burning with heat, but it was not the heat of the coal that kept the seraphim from touching it with his hands, but the holiness of the coal. And the seraphim, the six-winged angel of the Lord, took the coal, and with it he touched Isaiah's lips. And then we get this wonderful proclamation. See, says the angel, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Could more wonderful, life-giving words be spoken? No longer does Isaiah stand there in judgment. His unclean lips, the definition of his unworthiness, the guilt and the shame of how he had continually fallen short, the sin that made it impossible for him to have a right relationship with God, to stand before God, had been purified. It had been burned away, removed by the work of the burning coal. And because of this work, Isaiah can stand before the throne of the living God. He can stand in the temple quaking with the song of the angels and not be afraid. For he has been cleansed. He has been elevated. He has been given what he could not attain for himself. And so it is with us. The burning coal that touched Isaiah's lips is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in our lives. On that cross, Jesus took all of the sin and all of its accompanying shame away from us and put it upon himself, took it upon himself. And when he died there hanging on that tree, he paid for all of it. And so just as the coal burned the sin from the lips of Isaiah, so Jesus' death has washed us clean. Whiter than snow, as the old hymn says. And so when we have faith in Jesus, when we trust in the work of Jesus on the cross and our need for it, we too, like Isaiah, can stand before the throne of the living God. We too can and one day will stand in the temple quaking with the song of angels and we will lift our voices to join them. There will be no fear, for this is where we belong. We did not sneak in. We didn't crash the party. We came in through the gate. We came in through the door. We came in through Jesus Christ and have been purified through His death and resurrection. What a fantastic gift for each of us. What a total and complete blessing. Rest in this truth, church. Rest in the truth that because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, you have been forgiven. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, you have been redeemed. You have been cleansed. You are considered righteous by God. Rest in that. And continue to rest in that as we realize that the passage does not end with the cleansing of Isaiah. For now that Isaiah is cleansed, the Lord himself speaks for the first time. And he asks a question, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah, the Lord is saying, you have been purified, but you yourself confessed that you not only had unclean lips, but that you came from a people who have unclean lips. Who will I send to them that they may be clean? Who will go for us to give this message of wonderful redemption, purification, and hope? God's plan isn't just to save Isaiah. He wants Isaiah's people to be brought into right relationship with him. He wants 
all people to stand righteous before His throne. He wants all people to stand in the temple ringing with the song of the angels. But who will go and tell them of the coal? Who will go and tell them of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on their behalf? Isaiah standing there knows the heart of his God, knows what God desi- God's desire is, and so he says, Here am I. Send me. And so God sends Isaiah, and Isaiah goes, and, and Isaiah speaks. And God doesn't promise Isaiah a lavish lifestyle to go with his mission. He doesn't promise him popularity or wealth. He doesn't promise him that he will not suffer. There is no bartering. This isn't a deal. There isn't a bargain that was struck. Isaiah just goes. But he goes equipped by the Lord for his mission. And again, we find ourselves in Isaiah's shoes. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who recognize our need for his work on the cross and have been declared righteous because of our faith in him, are also called to go to our world, our country, our city, to our neighbor, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that others might have their lips touched by the coal, that God, the Holy Spirit, might be at work through us and through his proclaimed word in such a way that others would rest in the work done on the cross on their behalf. It's fun for me to go back and reminisce about eighth grade and those pictures hanging outside the art room in the hall. My picture ended up winning second place in our little school. And I was called up in the assembly where the winners were announced to come and get my ribbon. And when the old man from the Legion shook my hand, he leaned forward and whispered that he was really touched by my picture and he thanked me for it. I wasn't the most talented artist in the school. And my picture wasn't even the best one from my grade. But what I had drawn stirred something in an old man, and he thanked me for it. You may not be the most talented worker in God's mission field. In all honesty, it's pretty much a guarantee that you aren't. But don't worry, you're in great company. I'm definitely not either. But that does not and will not disqualify you from being a part of God's mission. He will use you and the gifts that he has given you to touch the hearts of people who are unclean or with unclean lips. Do not be discouraged by your perceived lack of talent or gifting. Know that it is God who does the work. It is God who uses your work, strengthens your work, works through you to bring about His purpose. Know that though He is the one that makes our efforts fruitful, He is still calling us to His mission to bring about His kingdom. And so here we stand, church. We have been purified by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have been declared righteous before God. We no longer carry the shame and the guilt of our sin. We are now in right relationship before God, standing in wonder and awe before the throne of the living God, listening to the song of the angels and feeling their song shake the temple. God... And into this wonderful, powerful, majestic scene, a question is asked by God. The Lord on high, the maker of heaven and earth, the great Redeemer says, 
Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And church, how will we respond? Amen.